Welcome back to all you diehard SCOTUS fans that made it all the way to the third and final segment of the 1857 Opinion of the Court in Dred Scott v. Sanford. We'll pick up right where we left off at the very last sentence on page 430. We proceed, therefore, to inquire whether the facts relied on by the plaintiff entitled him to his freedom. The case, as he himself states it, on the record brought here by his writ of error, is this. The plaintiff was a Negro slave, belonging to Dr. Emerson, who was a surgeon in the Army of the United States. In the year 1834, he took the plaintiff from the state of Missouri to the military post at Rock Island in the state of Illinois and held him there as a slave until the month of April or May, 1836. At the time last mentioned, said Dr. Emerson removed the plaintiff from said military post at Rock Island to the military post at Fort Snelling, situate on the west bank of the Mississippi River in the territory known as Upper Louisiana, acquired by the United States of France and situate north of the latitude of 36 degrees, 30 minutes north and north of the state of Missouri. Said Dr. Emerson held the plaintiff in slavery at said Fort Snelling from said last mentioned date until the year 1838. In the year 1835, Harriet, who is named in the second count of the plaintiff's declaration, was the Negro slave of Major Taliaferro, who belonged to the Army of the United States. In that year, 1835, said Major Taliaferro took said Harriet to said Fort Snelling, a military post situated as herein before stated and kept her there as a slave until the year 1836, and then sold and delivered her as a slave at said Fort Snelling, unto the said Dr. Emerson, herein before named. Said Dr. Emerson held said Harriet in slavery at said Fort Snelling until the year 1838. In the year 1836, the plaintiff and Harriet intermarried at Fort Snelling with the consent of Dr. Emerson, who then claimed to be their master and owner. Eliza and Lizzie, named in the third count of the plaintiff's declaration, are the fruit of that marriage. Eliza is about 14 years old and was born on board the steamboat Gypsy, north of the North Line of the state of Missouri and upon the river Mississippi. Lizzie is about seven years old and was born in the state of Missouri at the military post called Jefferson Barracks. In the year 1838, said Dr. Emerson removed the plaintiff and said Harriet and their said daughter Eliza from said Fort Snelling to the state of Missouri where they have ever since resided. Before the commencement of this suit, 
said Dr. Emerson, sold and conveyed the plaintiff and Harriet, Eliza, and Lizzie to the defendant as slaves, and the defendant has ever since claimed to hold them and each of them as slaves. In considering this part of the controversy, two questions arise. One, was he, together with his family, free in Missouri by reason of the stay in the territory of the United States herein before mentioned? And two, if they were not, is Scott himself free by reason of his removal to Rock Island in the state of Illinois, as stated in the above admissions? We proceed to examine the first question. The Act of Congress upon which the plaintiff relies declares that slavery and involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, shall be forever prohibited in all that part of the territory ceded by France, under the name of Louisiana, which lies north of 36 degrees 30 minutes north latitude and not included within the limits of Missouri. And the difficulty which meets us at the threshold of this part of the inquiry is whether Congress was authorized to pass this law under any of the powers granted to it by the Constitution. For if the authority is not given by that instrument, it is the duty of this court to declare it void and inoperative and incapable of conferring freedom upon anyone who is held as a slave under the have of any one of the states. The counsel for the plaintiff has laid much stress upon that article in the Constitution which confers on Congress the power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. But in the judgment of the court, that provision has no bearing on the present controversy, and the power there given, whatever it may be, is confined, and was intended to be confined, to the territory which at that time belonged to or was claimed by the United States, and was within their boundaries as settled by the treaty with Great Britain and can have no influence upon a territory afterwards acquired from a foreign government. It was a special provision for a known and particular territory and to meet a present emergency and nothing more. A brief summary of the history of the times, as well as the careful and measured terms in which the article is framed, will show the correctness of this proposition. It will be remembered that, from the commencement of the Revolutionary War, serious difficulties existed between the states in relation to the disposition of large and unsettled territories which were included in the chartered limits of some of the states. And some of the other states, and more especially Maryland, which had no unsettled lands, insisted that as the unoccupied lands, 
if wrestled from Great Britain, would owe their preservation to the common purse and the common sword, the money arising from them ought to be applied in just proportion among the several states to pay the expenses of the war, and ought not to be appropriated to the use of the state in whose chartered limits they might happen to lie, to the exclusion of the other states, by whose combined efforts and common expense the territory was defended and preserved against the claim of the British government. These difficulties caused much uneasiness during the war, while the issue was in some degree doubtful and the future boundaries of the United States yet to be defined by treaty if we achieved our independence. The majority of the Congress of the Confederation obviously concurred in opinion with the state of Maryland and desired to obtain from the states which claimed it a cession of this territory in order that Congress might raise money on this security to carry on the war. This appears by the resolution passed on the 6th of September, 1780, strongly urging the states to cede these lands to the United States, both for the sake of peace and union among themselves and to maintain the public credit. And this was followed by the resolution of October 10th, 1780, by which Congress pledged itself that if the lands were ceded, as recommended by the resolution above mentioned, they should be disposed of for the common benefit of the United States and be settled and formed into distinct Republican states, which should become members of the Federal Union and have the same rights of sovereignty and freedom and independence as other states. But these difficulties became much more serious after peace took place and the boundaries of the United States were established. Every state at that time felt severely the pressure of its war debt, but in Virginia and some other states, there were large territories of unsettled lands, the sale of which would enable them to discharge their obligations without much inconvenience, while other states, which had no such resource, saw before them many years of heavy and burdensome taxation, and the latter insisted, for the reasons before stated, that these unsettled lands should be treated as the common property of the states and the proceeds applied to their common benefit. The letters from the statesmen of that day will show how much this controversy occupied their thoughts and the dangers that were apprehended from it. It was the disturbing element of the time and fears were entertained that it might dissolve the confederation by which the states were then united. These fears and dangers were, however, at once removed when the state of Virginia in 1784 voluntarily ceded to the United States the immense tract of country lying northwest of the river Ohio, and which was within the acknowledged limits of the state. The only object of the state in making this session was to put an end to the threatening and exciting controversy 
and to enable the Congress of that time to dispose of the lands and appropriate the proceeds as a common fund for the common benefit of the states. It was not ceded because it was inconvenient to the state to hold and govern it, nor from any expectation that it could be better or more conveniently governed by the United States. The example of Virginia was soon afterwards followed by other states, and at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, all of the states, similarly situated, had ceded their unappropriated lands, except North Carolina and Georgia. The main object for which these sessions were desired and made was on account of their money value and to put an end to a dangerous controversy as to who was justly entitled to the proceeds when the lands should be sold. It is necessary to bring this part of the history of these sessions thus distinctly into view because it will enable us the better to comprehend the phraseology of the article in the Constitution so often referred to in the argument. Undoubtedly, the powers of sovereignty and the eminent domain were ceded with the land. This was essential in order to make it effectual and to accomplish its objects. But it must be remembered that, at that time, there was no government of the United States in existence with enumerated and limited powers. What was then called the United States were 13 separate, sovereign, independent states which had entered into a league or confederation for their mutual protection and advantage, and the Congress of the United States was composed of the representatives of these separate sovereignties meeting together as equals to discuss and decide on certain measures which the states, by the Articles of Confederation, had agreed to submit to their decision. But this confederation had none of the attributes of sovereignty in legislative, executive, or judicial power, it was a little more than a Congress of ambassadors authorized to represent separate nations in matters in which they had a common concern. It was this Congress that accepted the session from Virginia. They had no power to accept it under the Articles of Confederation, but they had an undoubted right as independent sovereignties to accept any session of territory for their common benefit which all of them assented to, and is equally clear that as their common property and having no superior to control them, they had the right to exercise absolute dominion over it, subject only to the restrictions which Virginia had imposed in her act of session. There was, as we have said, no government of the United States then in existence with special enumerated and limited powers. The territory belonged to sovereignties who, subject to the limitations above mentioned, had a right to establish any form of government they pleased by compact or treaty among themselves and to regulate rights of persons and rights of property in the territory as they might deem proper. 
It was by a Congress representing the authority of these several and separate sovereignties and acting under their authority and command, but not from any authority derived from the Articles of Confederation, that the instrument usually called the Ordinance of 1787 was adopted, regulating in much detail the principles and the laws by which this territory should be governed, and, among other provisions, slavery is prohibited in it. We do not question the power of the states by agreement among themselves to pass this ordinance, nor its obligatory force in the territory while the Confederation or League of the States, in their separate sovereign character, continued to exist. This was the state of things when the Constitution of the United States was formed. The territory ceded by Virginia belonged to the several confederated states as common property, and they had united in establishing in it a system of government and jurisprudence in order to prepare it for admission as states according to the terms of the session. They were about to dissolve this federative union and to surrender a portion of their independent sovereignty to a new government, which for certain purposes would make the people of the several states one people and which was to be supreme and controlling within its sphere of action throughout the United States. But this government was to be carefully limited in its powers and to exercise no authority beyond those expressly granted by the Constitution or necessarily to be implied from the language of the instrument and the objects it was intended to accomplish. And as this League of States would, upon the adoption of the new government, cease to have any power over the territory, and the ordinance they had agreed upon be incapable of execution and a mere nullity, it was obvious that some provision was necessary to give the new government sufficient power to enable it to carry into effect the objects for which it was ceded, and the compacts and agreements which the states had made with each other in the exercise of their powers of sovereignty. It was necessary that the lands should be sold to pay the war debt, that a government and system of jurisprudence should be maintained in it to protect the citizens of the United States who should migrate to the territory in their rights of person and of property. It was also necessary that the new government, about to be adopted, should be authorized to maintain the claim of the United States to the unappropriated lands in North Carolina and Georgia, which had not then been ceded, but the cession of which was confidently anticipated upon some terms that would be arranged between the general government and these two states. And moreover, there were many articles of value besides this property in land, such as arms, military stores, munitions, and ships of war, which were the common property of the states, 
when acting in their independent characters as Confederates, which neither the new government nor anyone else would have a right to take possession of or control without authority from them, and it was to place these things under the guardianship and protection of the new government and to clothe it with the necessary powers that the clause was interested in the Constitution, which gives Congress the power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. It was intended for a specific purpose to provide for the things we have mentioned. It was to transfer to the new government the property then held in common by the states and to give to that government power to apply it to the objects for which it had been destined by a mutual agreement among the states before their league was dissolved. It applied only to the property which the states held in common at that time and has no reference whatever to any territory or other property which the new sovereignty might afterwards itself acquire. The language used in the clause, the arrangement and combination of the powers, and the somewhat unusual phraseology it uses when it speaks of the political power to be exercised in the government of the territory, all indicate the design and meaning of the clause to be such as we have mentioned. It does not speak of any territory nor of territories, but uses language which, according to its legitimate meaning, points to a particular thing. The power is given in relation only to the territory of the United States, that is, to a territory then in existence, and then known or claimed as the territory of the United States. It begins its enumeration of powers by that of disposing, in other words, making sale of the lands or raising money from them, which, as we have already said, was the main object of the session and which is accordingly the first thing provided for in the article. It then gives the power which was necessarily associated with the disposition and sale of the lands, that is, the power of making needful rules and regulations respecting the territory. And whatever construction may now be given to these words, everyone, we think, must admit that they are not the words usually employed by statesmen in giving supreme power of legislation. They are certainly very unlike the words used in the power granted to legislate over territory which the new government might afterwards itself obtain by session from a state, either for its seat of government or for forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. And the same power of making needful rules respecting the territory is, in precisely the same language, applied to the other property belonging to the United States, associating the power over the territory in this respect 
with the power over movable or personal property, that is, the ships, arms, and munitions of war, which then belonged in common to the state sovereignties. And it will hardly be said that this power, in relation to the last-mentioned objects, was deemed necessary to be thus specially given to the new government in order to authorize it to make needful rules and regulations respecting the ships it might itself build, or arms and munitions of war it might itself manufacture or provide for the public service. No one, it is believed, would think a moment of deriving the power of Congress to make needful rules and regulations in relation to property of this kind from this clause of the Constitution, nor can it, upon any fair construction, be applied to any property but that which the new government was about to receive from the Confederated States. And if this be true as to this property, it must be equally true and limited as to the territory which is so carefully and precisely coupled with it and, like it, referred to as property in the power granted. The concluding words of the clause appear to render this construction irresistible, for after the provisions we have mentioned, it proceeds to say that nothing in the Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or of any particular state. Now, as we have before said, all of the states except North Carolina and Georgia had made the session before the Constitution was adopted, according to the resolution of Congress of October 10, 1780. The claims of other states that the unappropriated lands in these two states should be applied to the common benefit in like manner was still insisted on, but refused by the states. And this member of the clause in question evidently applies to them and can apply to nothing else. It was to exclude the conclusion that either party, by adopting the Constitution, would surrender what they deemed their rights. And when the latter provision relates so obviously to the unappropriated lands not yet ceded by the states, and the first clause makes provision for those then actually ceded, it is impossible by any just rule of construction, to make the first provision general and extend to all territories which the federal government might in any way afterwards acquire, when the latter is plainly and unequivocally confined to a particular territory, which was a part of the same controversy and involved in the same dispute and depended upon the same principles, the union of the two provisions in the same clause shows that they were kindred subjects and that the whole clause is local and relates only to lands within the limits of the United States which had been or then were claimed by a state and that no other territory was in the mind of the framers of the Constitution 
or intended to be embraced in it. Upon any other construction, it would be impossible to account for the insertion of the last provision in the place where it is found, or to comprehend why or for what object it was associated with the previous provision. This view of the subject is confirmed by the manner in which the present government of the United States dealt with the subject as soon as it came into existence. It must be borne in mind that the same states that formed the Confederation also formed and adopted the new government, to which so large a portion of their former sovereign powers were surrendered. It must also be borne in mind that all of these same states, which had then ratified the new constitution, were represented in the Congress which passed the first law for the government of this territory, and many of the members of that legislative body had been deputies from the states under the Confederation, had united in adopting the Ordinance of 1787, and assisted in forming the new government under which they were then acting, and whose powers they were then exercising. And it is obvious from the law they passed to carry into effect the principles and provisions of the ordinance that they regarded it as the act of the states done in the exercise of their legitimate powers at the time. The new government took the territory as it found it, and in the condition in which it was transferred, and did not attempt to undo anything that had been done. And among the earliest laws passed under the new government is one reviving the Ordinance of 1787, which had become inoperative and a nullity upon the adoption of the Constitution. This law introduces no new form or principles for its government, but recites in the preamble that it is passed in order that this ordinance may continue to have full effect and proceeds to make only those rules and regulations which were needful to adapt it to the new government, into whose hands the power had fallen. It appears, therefore, that this Congress regarded the purposes to which the land in this territory was to be applied and the form of government and principles of jurisprudence which were to prevail there while it remained in the territorial state as already determined on by the states when they had full power and right to make the decision, and that the new government, having received it in this condition, ought to carry substantially into effect the plans and principles which had been previously adopted by the states, and which, no doubt, the states anticipated when they surrendered their power to the new government. And if we regard this clause of the Constitution as pointing to this territory, with a territorial government already established in it, which had been ceded to the states for the purposes herein before mentioned, every word in it is perfectly appropriate and easily understood, and the provisions it contains are in perfect harmony with the objects for which it was ceded, and with the condition of its government as a territory at the time. 
We can, then, easily account for the manner in which the first Congress legislated on the subject, and can also understand why this power over the territory was associated in the same clause with the other property of the United States and subjected to the like power of making needful rules and regulations. But if the clause is construed in the expanded sense contended for, so as to embrace any territory acquired from a foreign nation by the present government and to give it in such territory a despotic and unlimited power over persons and property such as the confederated states might exercise in their common property, it would be difficult to account for the phraseology used when compared with other grants of power and also for its association with the other provisions in the same clause. The Constitution has always been remarkable for the felicity of its arrangement of different subjects and the perspicuity and appropriateness of the language it uses. But if this clause is construed to extend territory acquired by the present government from a foreign nation outside the limits of any charter from the British government to a colony, it would be difficult to say why it was deemed necessary to give the government the power to sell any vacant lands belonging to the sovereignty which might be found within it, and, if this was necessary, why the grant of this power should precede the power to legislate over it and establish a government there. And still more difficult to say why it was deemed necessary so specially and particularly to grant the power to make needful rules and regulations in relation to any personal or movable property it might acquire there. For the words other property necessarily by every known rule of interpretation must mean property of a different description from territory or land. And the difficulty would perhaps be insurmountable in endeavoring to account for the last member of the sentence, which provides that nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or any particular state, or to say how any particular state could have claims in or to a territory ceded by a foreign government or to account for associating this provision with the preceding provisions of the clause, with which it would appear to have no connection. The words, needful rules and regulations, would seem also to have been cautiously used for some definite object. They are not the words usually employed by statesmen when they mean to give the powers of sovereignty or to establish a government or to authorize its establishment. Thus, in the law to renew and keep alive the Ordinance of 1787 and to reestablish the government, the title of the law is an act to provide for the government of the territory northwest of the River Ohio. And in the Constitution, 
when granting the power to legislate over the territory that may be selected for the seat of government independently of a state. It does not say Congress shall have power to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory, but it declares that Congress shall have power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States. The words rules and regulations are usually employed in the Constitution in speaking of some particular specified power which it means to confer on the government, and not, as we have seen, when granting general powers of legislation, as, for example, the particular power to Congress to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, or the particular and specific power to regulate commerce, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization, to coin money and regulate the value thereof, and to construe the words of which we are speaking as general and unlimited grant of sovereignty over territories which the government might afterwards acquire is to use them in a sense and for a purpose for which they were not used in any other part of the instrument. But if confined to a particular territory in which a government and laws had already been established, but which would require some alterations to adapt it to the new government, the words are peculiarly applicable and appropriate for that purpose. The necessity of this special provision in relation to property and the rights or property held in common by the Confederated States is illustrated by the first clause of the sixth article. This clause provides that all debts, contracts, and engagements entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be valid against the United States under this government as under the Confederation. This provision, like the one under consideration, was indispensable if the new constitution was adopted. The new government was not a mere change in a dynasty or in a form of government, leaving the nation or sovereignty the same and clothed with all the rights and bound by all the obligations of the preceding one. But when the present United States came into existence under the new government, it was a new political body, a new nation, then for the first time taking its place in the family of nations. It took nothing by succession from the Confederation. It had no right as its successor to any property or rights of property which it had acquired and was not liable for any of its obligations. It was evidently viewed in this light by the framers of the Constitution, 
and as the several states would cease to exist in their former confederated character upon the adoption of the Constitution, and could not, in that character, again assemble together, special provisions were indispensable to transfer to the new government the property and rights which at that time they held in common, and at the same time to authorize it to lay taxes and appropriate money to pay the common debt which they had contracted. And this power could only be given to it by special provisions in the Constitution. The clause in relation to the territory and other property of the United States provided for the first, and the clause last quoted provided for the other. They have no connection with the general powers and rights of sovereignty delegated to the new government and can neither enlarge nor diminish them. They were inserted to meet a present emergency and not to regulate its powers as a government. Indeed, a similar provision was deemed necessary in relation to treaties made by the Confederation and when, in the clause next succeeding the one of which we have last spoken, it is declared that treaties shall be the supreme law of the land. Care is taken to include, by express words, the treaties made by the confederated states. The language is, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. Whether, therefore, we take the particular clause in question by itself or in connection with the other provisions of the Constitution, we think it clear that it applies only to the particular territory of which we have spoken and cannot, by any just rule of interpretation, be extended to territory which the new government might afterwards obtain from a foreign nation. Consequently, the power which Congress may have lawfully exercised in this territory, while it remained under a territorial government and which may have been sanctioned by judicial decision, can furnish no justification and no argument to support a similar exercise of power over territory afterwards acquired by the federal government. We put aside, therefore, any argument drawn from precedents showing the extent of the power which the general government exercised over slavery in this territory as altogether inapplicable to the case before us. But the case of the American and Ocean Insurance Companies v. Cantor has been quoted as establishing a different construction of this clause of the Constitution, there is, however, not the slightest conflict between the opinion now given and the one referred to, and it is only by taking a single sentence out of the latter and separating it from the context that even an appearance of conflict can be shown. We need not comment on such a mode of expounding an opinion of the court. Indeed, it most commonly misrepresents instead of expounding it, and this is fully exemplified in the case referred to where if one sentence is taken by itself, 
the opinion would appear to be in direct conflict with that now given, but the words which immediately follow that sentence show that the court did not mean to decide the point, but merely affirm the power of Congress to establish a government in the territory, leaving it an open question whether that power was derived from this clause in the Constitution or was to be necessarily inferred from a power to acquire territory by cession from a foreign government. The opinion on this part of the case is short, and we give the whole of it to show how well the selection of a single sentence is calculated to mislead. The passage referred to is in page 26, U.S. 542, in which the court, in speaking of the power of Congress to establish a territorial government in Florida until it should become a state, uses the following language. In the meantime, Florida continues to be a territory of the United States, governed by that clause of the Constitution which empowers Congress to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property of the United States. Perhaps the power of governing a territory belonging to the United States, which has not, by becoming a state, acquired the means of self-government, may result necessarily from the facts that it is not within the jurisdiction of any particular state and is within the power and jurisdiction of the United States. The right to govern may be the inevitable consequence of the right to acquire territory, whichever may be the source from which the power is derived. The possession of it is unquestionable. It is thus clear from the whole opinion on this point that the court did not mean to decide whether the power was derived from the clause in the Constitution or was the necessary consequence of the right to acquire. They do decide that the power in Congress is unquestionable, and in this we entirely concur, and nothing will be found in this opinion to the contrary. The power stands firmly on the latter alternative put by the court, that is, as the inevitable consequence of the right to acquire territory. And what still more clearly demonstrates that the court did not mean to decide the question but leave it open for future consideration is the fact that the case was decided in the circuit court by Mr. Justice Johnson, and his decision was affirmed by the Supreme Court. His opinion at the circuit is given in full in a note to the case, and in that opinion he states in explicit terms that the clause of the Constitution applies only to the territory then within the limits of the United States, and not to Florida, which had been acquired by cession from Spain. This part of his opinion will be found in the note in page 517 of the report. But he does not dissent from the opinion of the Supreme Court, thereby showing that, in his judgment as well as that of the court, the case before them did not call for a decision on that particular point, and the court abstained from deciding it, and in a part of its opinion subsequent to the passage we have quoted, 
where the court speaks of the legislative power of Congress in Florida, they still speak with the same reserve. And in page 26 U.S. 546, speaking of the power of Congress to authorize the territorial legislature to establish courts there, the court says, They are legislative courts created in virtue of the general right of sovereignty which exists in the government or in virtue of that clause which enables Congress to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory belonging to the United States. It has been said that the construction given to this clause is new and now for the first time brought forward, the case of which we are speaking and which has been so much discussed shows that the fact is otherwise. It shows that precisely the same question came before Mr. Justice Johnson at his circuit 30 years ago, was fully considered by him, and the same construction given to the clause in the Constitution, which is now given by this court, and that upon an appeal from his decision, the same question was brought before this court, but was not decided because a decision upon it was not required by the case before the court. There is another sentence in the opinion which has been commented on, which even in a still more striking manner shows how one may mislead or be misled by taking out a single sentence from the opinion of a court and leaving out of view what precedes and follows. It is in page 26, U.S. 546, near the close of the opinion, in which the court says, In legislating for them, the territories of the United States, Congress exercises the combined powers of the general and of a state government. And it is said that as a state may unquestionably prohibit slavery within its territory, this sentence decides in effect that Congress may do the same in a territory of the United States, exercising there the powers of a state as well as the power of the general government. The examination of this passage in the case referred to would be more appropriate when we come to consider in another part of this opinion what power Congress can constitutionally exercise in a territory over the rights of person or rights of property of a citizen. But, as it is in the same case, with the passage we have before commented on, we dispose of it now, as it will save the court from the necessity of referring again to the case. And it will be seen upon reading the page in which this sentence is found that it has no reference whatever to the power of Congress over rights of person or rights of property, but relates altogether to the power of establishing judicial tribunals to administer the laws constitutionally passed and defining the jurisdiction they may exercise. The law of Congress establishing a territorial government in Florida provided that the legislature of the territory should have legislative powers over all rightful objects of legislation, but no law should be valid which was inconsistent with the laws 
and Constitution of the United States. Under the power thus conferred, the legislature of Florida passed an act erecting a tribunal at Key West to decide cases of salvage, and in the case of which we are speaking, the question arose whether the territorial legislature could be authorized by Congress to establish such a tribunal with such powers, and one of the parties, among other objections, insisted that Congress could not, under the Constitution, authorize the legislature of the territory to establish such a tribunal with such powers, but that it must be established by Congress itself, and that a sale of cargo made under its order to pay salvers was void as made without legal authority and passed no property to the purchaser. It is in disposing of this objection that the sentence relied on occurs, and the court begins that part of the opinion by stating with great precision the point which they are about to decide. They say, It has been contended that by the Constitution of the United States, the judicial power of the United States extends to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, and that the whole of the judicial power must be vested in one supreme court and in such inferior courts as Congress shall, from time to time, ordain and establish. Hence, it has been argued that Congress cannot vest admiralty jurisdiction in courts created by the territorial legislature. And after thus clearly stating the point before them and which they were about to decide, they proceed to show that these territorial tribunals were not constitutional courts but merely legislative, and that Congress might therefore delegate the power to the territorial government to establish the court in question. And they conclude that part of the opinion in the following words. Quote, Although admiralty jurisdiction can be exercised in the states and those courts only which are established in pursuance of the third article of the Constitution, the same limitation does not extend to the territories. In legislating for them, Congress exercises the combined powers of the general and state governments, unquote. Thus it will be seen by these quotations from the opinion that the court, after stating the question it was about to decide in a manner too plain to be misunderstood, proceeded to decide it and announced as the opinion of the tribunal that in organizing the judicial department of the government in a territory of the United States, Congress does not act under and is not restricted by the third article in the Constitution and is not bound in a territory to ordain and establish courts in which the judges hold their offices during good behavior but may exercise the discretionary power which a state exercises in establishing its judicial department and regulating the jurisdiction of its courts, and may authorize the territorial government to establish, or may itself establish, courts in which the judges hold their offices for a term of years only, 
and may vest in them judicial power upon subjects confided to the judiciary of the United States. And in doing this, Congress undoubtedly exercises the combined power of the general and a state government. It exercises the discretionary power of a state government in authorizing the establishment of a court in which the judges hold their appointments for a term of years only and not during good behavior, and it exercises the power of the general government in investing that court with admiralty jurisdiction over which the general government had exclusive jurisdiction in the territory. No one, we presume, will question the correctness of that opinion, nor is there anything in conflict with it in the opinion now given. The point decided in the case cited has no relation to the question now before the court. That depended on the construction of the third article of the Constitution in relation to the judiciary of the United States and the power which Congress might exercise in a territory in organizing the judicial department of the government. The case before us depends upon other and different provisions of the Constitution altogether separate and apart from the one above mentioned. The question as to what courts Congress may ordain or establish in a territory to administer laws which the Constitution authorizes it to pass and what laws it is or is not authorized by the Constitution to pass are widely different, are regulated by different and separate articles of the Constitution, and stand upon different principles. And we are satisfied that no one who reads attentively the page in Peter's reports to which we have referred can suppose that the attention of the court was drawn for a moment to the question now before this court or that it meant in that case to say that Congress had a right to prohibit a citizen of the United States from taking any property which he lawfully held into a territory of the United States. This brings us to examine by what provision of the Constitution the present federal government, under its delegated and restricted powers, is authorized to acquire territory outside of the original limits of the United States, and what powers it may exercise therein over the person or property of a citizen of the United States while it remains a territory and until it shall be admitted as one of the states of the Union. There is certainly no power given by the Constitution to the federal government to establish or maintain colonies bordering on the United States or at a distance to be ruled and governed at its own pleasure, nor to enlarge its territorial limits in a way except by the admission of new states. That power is plainly given, and if a new state is admitted, it needs no further legislation by Congress because the Constitution itself defines the relative rights and powers and duties of the state, and the citizens of the state, and the federal government. But no power is given to acquire a territory to be held and governed permanently in that character. And indeed the power exercised by Congress to acquire territory and establish a government there, according to its own unlimited discretion, 
was viewed with great jealousy by the leading statesmen of the day. And in the Federalist number 38, written by Mr. Madison, he speaks of the acquisition of the Northwestern Territory by the Confederated States, by the cession from Virginia and the establishment of a government there as an exercise of power not warranted by the Articles of Confederation and dangerous to the liberties of the people, and he urges the adoption of the Constitution as a security and safeguard against such an exercise of power. We do not mean, however, to question the power of Congress in this respect. The power to expand the territory of the United States by the admission of new states is plainly given, and in the construction of this power by all the departments of the government, it has been held to authorize the acquisition of territory not fit for admission at the time, but to be admitted as soon as its population and situation would entitle it to admission. It is acquired to become a state and not to be held as a colony and governed by Congress with absolute authority and as the propriety of admitting a new state is committed to the sound discretion of Congress, the power to acquire territory for that purpose to be held by the United States until it is in a suitable condition to become a state upon an equal footing with the other states must rest upon the same discretion. It is a question for the political department of the government and not the judicial. And whatever the political department of the government shall recognize as within the limits of the United States, the judicial department is also bound to recognize and to administer in it the laws of the United States so far as they apply and to maintain in the territory the authority and rights of the government, and also the personal rights and rights of property of individual citizens as secured by the Constitution. All we mean to say on this point is that as there is no express regulation in the Constitution defining the power which the general government may exercise over the person or property of a citizen in a territory thus acquired, the court must necessarily look to the provisions and principles of the Constitution and its distribution of powers for the rules and principles by which its decision must be governed. Taking this rule to guide us, it may be safely assumed that citizens of the United States who migrate to a territory belonging to the people of the United States cannot be ruled as mere colonists, dependent upon the will of the general government and to be governed by any laws it may think proper to impose. The principle upon which our government rests and upon which alone they continue to exist is the union of states, sovereign and independent within their own limits in their internal and domestic concerns, and bound together as one people by a general government possessing certain enumerated and restricted powers delegated to it by the people of the several states, and exercising supreme authority within the scope of the powers granted to it throughout the dominion of the United States. A power, therefore, in the general government to obtain and hold colonies and dependent territories 
over which they might legislate without restriction would be inconsistent with its own existence in its present form. Whatever it acquires, it acquires for the benefit of the people of the several states who created it. It is their trustee acting for them, and charged with the duty of promoting the interests of the whole people of the Union in the exercise of the powers specifically granted. At the time when the territory in question was obtained by cession from France, it contained no population fit to be associated together and admitted as a state, and it therefore was absolutely necessary to hold possession of it as a territory belonging to the United States until it was settled and inhabited by a civilized community capable of self-government and in a condition to be admitted on equal terms with the other states as a member of the Union. But as we have before said, it was acquired by the general government as the representative and trustee of the people of the United States, and it must therefore be held in that character for their common and equal benefit. For it was the people of the several states acting through their agent and representative, the federal government, who in fact acquired the territory in question, and the government holds it for their common use until it shall be associated with the other states as a member of the Union. But until that time arrives, it is undoubtedly necessary that some government should be established in order to organize society and protect the inhabitants in their persons and property, and as the people of the United States could act in this matter only through the government which represented them and through which they spoke and acted when the territory was obtained. It was not only within the scope of its powers, but it was its duty to pass such laws and establish such a government as would enable those by whose authority they acted to reap the advantages anticipated from its acquisition and to gather there a population which would enable it to assume the position to which it was destined among the states of the Union. The power to acquire necessarily carries with it the power to preserve and apply to the purposes for which it was acquired. The form of government to be established necessarily rested in the discretion of Congress. It was their duty to establish the one that would be best suited for the protection and security of the citizens of the United States and other inhabitants who might be authorized to take up their abode there, and that must always depend upon the existing condition of the territory as to the number and character of its inhabitants and their situation in the territory. In some cases, a government consisting of persons appointed by the federal government would best subserve the interests of the territory when the inhabitants were few and scattered, and new to one another. In other instances, it would be more advisable to commit the powers of self-government to the people who had settled in the territory as being the most competent to determine what was best for their own interests. But some form of civil authority would be absolutely necessary 
to organize and preserve civilized society and prepare it to become a state. And what is the best form must always depend on the condition of the territory at the time. And the choice of the mode must depend upon the exercise of a discretionary power by Congress. Acting within the scope of its constitutional authority and not infringing upon the rights of person or rights of property of the citizen who might go there to reside, or for any other lawful purpose. It was acquired by the exercise of this discretion, and it must be held and governed in like manner until it is fitted to be a state. But the power of Congress over the person or property of a citizen can never be a mere discretionary power under our Constitution and form of government. The powers of the government and the rights and privileges of the citizen are regulated and plainly defined by the Constitution itself. And when the territory becomes a part of the United States, the federal government enters into possession in the character impressed upon it by those who created it. It enters upon it with its powers over the citizen strictly defined and limited by the Constitution, from which it derives its own existence and by virtue of which alone it continues to exist and act as a government and sovereignty. It has no power of any kind beyond it, and it cannot, when it enters a territory of the United States, put off its character and assume discretionary or despotic powers which the Constitution has denied to it. It cannot create for itself a new character separated from the citizens of the United States and the duties it owes them under the provisions of the Constitution. The territory being a part of the United States, the government and the citizen both enter it under the authority of the Constitution with their respective rights defined and marked out, and the federal government can exercise no power over his person or property beyond what that instrument confers, nor lawfully deny any right which it has reserved. A reference to a few of the provisions of the Constitution will illustrate this proposition. For example, no one, we presume, will contend that Congress can make any law in a territory respecting the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people of the territory to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for the redress of grievances. Nor can Congress deny to the people the right to keep and bear arms, nor the right to trial by jury, nor compel anyone to be a witness against himself in a criminal proceeding. These powers, and others in relation to rights of person, which is not necessary here to enumerate, are in express and positive terms denied to the general government and the rights of private property have been guarded with equal care. Thus the rights of property are united with the rights of person and placed on the same ground by the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, 
which provides that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, and property without due process of law, and an act of Congress which deprives a citizen of the United States of his liberty or property merely because he came himself or brought his property into a particular territory of the United States and who had committed no offense against the laws could hardly be dignified with the name of due process of law. So, too, it will hardly be contended that Congress could by law quarter a soldier in a house in a territory without the consent of the owner in time of peace nor in time of war, but in a manner prescribed by law. Nor could they by law forfeit the property of a citizen in a territory who was convicted of treason for a longer period than the life of the person convicted, nor take private property for public use without just compensation. The powers over person and property of which we speak are not only granted to Congress, but are in express terms denied, and they are forbidden to exercise them, and this prohibition is not confined to the states, but the words are general and extend to the whole territory over which the Constitution gives it power to legislate, including those portions of it remaining under territorial government, as well as that covered by states. It is a total absence of power everywhere within the dominion of the United States and places the citizens of a territory, so far as these rights are concerned, on the same footing with citizens of the states and guards them as firmly and plainly against any inroads which the general government might attempt under the plea of implied or incidental powers. And if Congress itself cannot do this, if it is beyond the powers conferred on the federal government, it will be admitted, we presume, that it could not authorize a territorial government to exercise them. It could confer no power on any local government established by its authority to violate the provisions of the Constitution. It seems, however, to be supposed that there is a difference between property in a slave and other property and that different rules may be applied to it in expounding the Constitution of the United States and the laws and usages of nations and the writings of eminent jurists upon the relation of master and slave and their mutual rights and duties and the powers which governments may exercise over it have been dwelt upon in the argument. But in considering the question before us, it must be borne in mind that there is no law of nations standing between the people of the United States and their government and interfering with their relation to each other. The powers of the government and the rights of the citizen under it are positive and practical regulations plainly written down. The people of the United States have delegated to it certain enumerated powers and forbidden it to exercise others. It has no power over the person or property of a citizen, but what the citizens of the United States have granted. And no laws or usages of other nations or reasoning of statesmen or jurists 
upon the relations of master and slave can enlarge the powers of the government or take from the citizens the rights they have reserved. And if the Constitution recognizes the right of property of the master and a slave and makes no distinction between that description of property and other property owned by a citizen, no tribunal acting under the authority of the United States, whether it be legislative, executive, or judicial, has a right to draw such a distinction or deny to it the benefit of the provisions and guarantees which have been provided for the protection of private property against the encroachments of the government. Now, as we have already said in an earlier part of this opinion upon a different point, the right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. The right to traffic in it, like an ordinary article of merchandise and property, was guaranteed to the citizens of the United States in every state that might desire it for 20 years. And the government, in express terms, is pledged to protect it in all future time if the slave escapes from his owner. This is done in plain words, too plain to be misunderstood, and no word can be found in the Constitution which gives Congress a greater power over slave property or which entitles property of that kind to less protection than property of any other description. The only power conferred is the power coupled with the duty of guarding and protecting the owner in his rights. Upon these considerations, it is the opinion of the court that the act of Congress which prohibited a citizen from holding and owning property of this kind in the territory of the United States north of the line therein mentioned is not warranted by the Constitution and is therefore void, and that neither Dred Scott himself nor any of his family were made free by being carried into this territory, even if they had been carried there by the owner with the intention of becoming a permanent resident. We have so far examined the case as it stands under the Constitution of the United States and the powers thereby delegated to the federal government. But there is another point in the case which depends on state power and state law, and it is contended on the part of the plaintiff that he is made free by being taken to Rock Island in the state of Illinois, independently of his residence in the territory of the United States, and being so made free, he was not again reduced to a state of slavery by being brought back to Missouri. Our notice of this part of the case will be very brief, for the principle on which it depends was decided in this court upon much consideration in the case of Strader et al. v. Graham. In that case, the slaves had been taken from Kentucky to Ohio with the consent of the owner and afterwards brought back to Kentucky, and this court held that their status or condition as free or slave depended upon the laws of Kentucky when they were brought back into that state and not of Ohio, 
and that this court had no jurisdiction to revise the judgment of a state court upon its own laws. This was the point directly before the court, and the decision that this court had not jurisdiction turned upon it, as will be seen by the report of the case. So in this case, as Scott was a slave when taken into the state of Illinois by his owner, and was there held as such, and brought back in that character, his status as free or slave depended on the laws of Missouri and not of Illinois. It has, however, been urged in the argument that by the laws of Missouri, he was free on his return, and that this case, therefore, cannot be governed by the case of Strader et al. v. Graham, where it appeared by the laws of Kentucky that the plaintiffs continued to be slaves on their return from Ohio. But whatever doubts or opinions may at one time have been entertained upon this subject, we are satisfied upon a careful examination of all the cases decided in the state courts of Missouri. But whatever doubts or opinions may at one time have been entertained upon this subject, we are satisfied upon a careful examination of all the cases decided in the state courts of Missouri referred to that it is now firmly settled by the decisions of the highest court in the state that Scott and his family upon their return were not free, but were by the laws of Missouri, the property of the defendant and that the circuit court of the United States had no jurisdiction when by the laws of the state, the plaintiff was a slave and not a citizen. Moreover, the plaintiff, it appears, brought a similar action against the defendant in the state court of Missouri, claiming the freedom of himself and his family upon the same grounds and the same evidence upon which he relies in the case before the court. The case was carried before the Supreme Court of the state, was fully argued there, and that court decided that neither the plaintiff nor his family were entitled to freedom and were still the slaves of the defendant and reversed the judgment of the inferior state court, which had given a different decision. If the plaintiff supposed that this judgment of the Supreme Court of the state was erroneous and that this court had jurisdiction to revise and reverse it, the only mode by which he could legally bring it before this court was by writ of error directed to the Supreme Court of the state, requiring it to transmit the record to this court. If this had been done, it is too plain for argument that the writ must have been dismissed for want of jurisdiction in this court. The case of Strader and others, v. Graham, is directly in point and, indeed, independent of any decision, the language of the 25th section of the Act of 1789 is too clear and precise to admit of controversy. But the plaintiff did not pursue the mode prescribed by law 
for bringing the judgment of a state court before this court for revision, but suffered the case to be remanded to the inferior state court, where it is still continued, and is, by agreement of parties, to await the judgment of this court on the point. All of this appears on the record before us, and by the printed report of the case. And while the case is yet open and pending in the inferior state court, the plaintiff goes into the circuit court of the United States upon the same case and the same evidence and against the same party and proceeds to judgment and then brings here the same case from the circuit court which the law would not have permitted him to bring directly from the state court. And if this court takes jurisdiction in this form, the result, so far as the rights of the respective parties are concerned, is in every respect substantially the same as if it had, in open violation of law, entertained jurisdiction over the judgment of the state court upon a writ of error, and revised and reversed its judgment upon the ground that its opinion upon the question of law was erroneous. It would ill become this court to sanction such an attempt to evade the law or to exercise an appellate power in this circuitous way, which it is forbidden to exercise in the direct and regular and invariable forms of judicial proceedings. Upon the whole, therefore, it is the judgment of this court that it appears by the record before us that the plaintiff in error is not a citizen of Missouri in the sense in which that word is used in the Constitution, and that the Circuit Court of the United States, for that reason, had no jurisdiction in the case, and could give no judgment in it. Its judgment for the defendant must, consequently, be reversed, and a mandate issued directing the suit to be dismissed for want of jurisdiction. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.